0: copy of God's word to Jeremiah chapter 30. The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Let's uh, let's begin with prayer and asking God to bless our time in the study of his word this morning and then uh, we'll turn our attention to Jeremiah chapter 30. Father, thank you for the gift of grace that we celebrate we thank you for your word for the truth of the the words that we sing uh, that you have loved us deeply in Christ and that he took on in his own death the penalty for our sin and has brought us to glory as sons and daughters that we celebrate the joy of the gift of this this grace we have Uh, we ask now that over the, the remainder of the time that we have we would deeply drink from the well of grace and, and mine the riches of your word. We pray that as we do so, uh, our, the palates of our hearts would be opened to enjoy the, the, the beauties of your grace, that we would, uh, in our mind, be focused and attentive to the leading and the teaching of your word by the Spirit, uh, that our hearts and minds, again, would be free from distraction but attentive to your word. We pray for the little ears that are in the room that they, by your grace, would hear the bits and pieces of the truth of the gospel and that combined with the effort of their parents to lead them to the cross, they would begin to understand and in understanding, believe. We pray also, God, for those who are here who do not know fully and have not drank completely from the well of joy and grace that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would be moved to do so that their thirst would be slaked, that their hunger would be satisfied, and that they would know that you are their God. Yeah, bless this time together for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you've ever put together an Ikea furniture, you know that it can be fairly frustrating. It comes in sometimes lots of tiny little boxes and For whatever reason, they give you extra pieces just in case you miss some. So at the end, you're left with what you think is a sturdy table or desk, and you're looking at a pile full of extra bits of screws and pieces, and you're wondering if you forgot something or skipped a step and whether or not this thing will really hold its weight or you should use it. And so maybe if you're extra diligent, you'll go back through the instructions or extra extra diligent you'll even maybe start working backwards tear some things apart and try to see if you really did miss anything because there shouldn't be that many extra pieces or maybe you've worked on a car and you like to disassemble things or on a computer and to see how things work you take it apart examine it and try to put it back together again well there's something unique in the construction and deconstruction of certain things that can teach us what it means about how we rely on certain things to get where we're trying to go. Whether it's instructions, working backwards from one place to another, whether it's deconstructing something like a computer or another gadget or maybe putting together some furniture and trying to figure out where you missed a step, understanding what happens when everything has been taken apart and looking at it in its sort of exploded view allows us to see all of its parts for the whole. And conversely, when we bring them back together, we see the whole for its parts, and we can become more appreciative of what it is we're built or what it is we're building. But The question is, once everything has been taken apart or once everything has been put together again, where do you go from there? How do you know what is the next step? How do you know that you've done it right? How do you know that you've, you've done it correctly? Well, hopefully you have instruction or a guide or, because you've done this before, some knowledge. At the end of the day, you're left with whatever it is in front of you And you're trusting your guide or the instructions to have done what its job was to do, to lead you in truth. Well, Jeremiah is a prophet, and a prophet is someone who speaks for the Lord. His word is God's word. It should be taken as such, and to disobey Jeremiah's prophecies is to disobey God himself. That's what a prophet is meant to do. And here, Jeremiah, over the full course, this so far, in Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, has been warning of destruction to come. And now, at this point in Jeremiah's scroll, we learn that destruction has come. The Babylonian captivity has begun. There Nebuchadnezzar and his armies have overtaken Jerusalem. Israel to the north has already fallen to the Assyrians. And destruction and dismay and despair now is the word of the day. Jeremiah is saying, you need to re-examine what you have built, Judah. You need to begin to take things apart again so that you can see what you missed in order to be built back up to what God has intended you to be. If you recall in the very opening chapters of the book of Jeremiah, God called him as a prophet to the nations, to the Gentiles, that he might tear down, that he might pluck up, in order that he may then build, that he may help grow. So the first half of the book is really Jeremiah's ministry of plucking up, is uprooting the weeds of sin and idolatry that have grown up into the heart of Judah, warning them of what is to come if they didn't repent. But now we're turning a tide, turning the corner from the warning of destruction to now that destruction has come to now hope and redemption. We've taken everything apart and now Jeremiah wants Judah to examine themselves and begin to see what it looks like to rebuild to what God has intended all along for them to be. So when everything is ultimately stripped away, the end is not actually the end. There is more yet to do. In the first couple of chapters or verses here of chapter 30, we see that God begins to offer hope and redemption. Just look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book. All the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. All of what Jeremiah was to write down was what the Lord had given to him to say as a prophet, and then declare to them that in the midst of their distress, in the midst of their disaster, God's intentions are still to restore his people. The next several chapters, chapters 30 through 33, are a part of the book of Jeremiah, which is often called the book of consolation. Because we've traversed the first 29 chapters of Jeremiah, and it's been a lot of wrath. Been a lot of destruction. It's been a lot of warning of what is to come. And that destruction has come. The warnings have not been heeded. And now Babylon has taken over Jerusalem. So they need to be consoled. Jeremiah and his contemporaries have been carted off into Babylon. And there's nothing left for them. The pieces are strewn about before them. And Jeremiah says, by God's word, I will bring comfort. I will restore the fortunes of my people. I will bring them back from that which I sent them. They shall go back to the land. They will again have possession of it. So this book of consolation, which uh, over the next several weeks we'll look at, reveals two important and timely truths, not just for Judah, but for all of those who find themselves facing the heap of bits and pieces of their life that they're not sure will fit back together in the same way. Two important and timely truths. The first is that God still cares. That despite the judgment, despite the discipline, Despite, despite all of the, the difficulties that they will face over the next 70 years in exile and the hardship of being sent back into the land to rebuild and to reteach and to reinstruct and to relearn, despite how difficult it will be, God still cares for His people. Look at the word Lord in your Bible. Unless you're reading in a different translation other than English, you see that the Lord, the word Lord is all caps. That's how the Bible, the English Bible, translates the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which is the name that he gave himself when he spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when he says that I am. And when he begins to make promises on the basis not simply of his word or power, but on the basis of his very character, he enters into covenant. He makes covenant covenant. He keeps covenant. And so he's reminding them simply by saying, I will restore again the fortunes of my people, that he still cares, that he's a covenant-keeping God. What comfort would that be? Just the name, Yahweh, from the lips of his prophets and in the ears of his people that are now in exile to hear and be reminded that despite the way that things are right now, God does care. Maybe you're here this morning and you're looking at the pile of bits and pieces of your life and you're wondering, does it really matter if I put it together one way or another? Does God care how I put it together? Does He care what the result looks like? Does He care that this piece goes there? Does He care that I'm doing this for my family? Does He care that I'm trying to do right by His Word? Does He care that I'm trying to make much of Jesus? Does it really matter? The covenant name of God, Yahweh, reminds us that, yes, He does care. He cares enough to enter into relationship with His people. But that's only one half of what we are taught just from this chapter and beyond. Not only is it that God cares, but we learn that God acts. He doesn't look from afar and have pity and compassion on His people, but He's moved with compassion to act for His people. Yes, by His hand of discipline, Israel and Judah have fallen into captivity. We'll see clearly that he takes credit for what has been done to Judah. He says, I have done these things. We'll see. But God's compassion doesn't wane even when his anger or wrath or judgment is poured out. God does not limit himself by the excess of another part of his character. God's compassion moves him to continue to act. And he acts in accordance with his compassion, his love. So when he says, tell my people that I will bring them back. Tell them that Yahweh, the God of covenant, with them and in relationship to them will restore their fortunes. He wants them to know not only does he care, but that he will act for them. This is the place that Jeremiah and Judah finds themselves. Everything's gone everything's lost if it's not burnt to the ground yet it will be very soon so what do we do? God begins to console them comfort them tell tell them Jeremiah that I'm still their God I care for them and I will act on their behalf when they have nothing left notice that God here tells Jeremiah to write everything down in a book Normally, prophets would receive a word from the Lord, go out into the public, and declare that message. Go into the public square. Occasionally, Jeremiah is told to write down a letter and send it to the kings, but generally, prophets would receive by revelation, one form or another, God's word, God's message, go into the public and say, thus says the Lord. But God here says, write everything down in the book, everything that I've told you. Notice that God intends for Jeremiah to write down these prophecies, write down this message, as opposed to simply proclaiming it in public, orally, because this provides a clue as to whom this word, this message, the prophecies would ultimately reach, who they would continue to be read by, whose hope would continually look to these same words. So not simply the exilic community, the community there in exile, but eventually, as we read about in Nehemiah and Ezra, The post-exilic community, when they're released from Babylonian captivity and brought back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. But not simply the pre-exilic and post-exilic community, but also that first century Jew who was still waiting and trusting on the promises of God, even though they're back in Jerusalem, still under the thumb of Roman government, not able to truly, fully live and worship as God has commanded them. And even today, for the weary Christian pilgrim, these words were written down for our sake. So as we read, note first that the word of hope and consolation comes to those who are in exile. But that word lives longer than exile. It lasts for those even as they return to the land, as God had said that he gave to their fathers, and even as read and believed by those in the first century as they were waiting and hoping for the Messiah to come and free them from captivity and oppression and the burden of another government. And even today, Christians will read these words and see because Jeremiah, faithful to his calling, writes them for us. And what we'll see over the last several parts of the chapter is that a series of contrasts come up between what man is like and what God is like, all to remind the readers who would put their hope and trust in the message and in the prophecies of Jeremiah that God will do what He says, that He cares and that He acts. So their eyes are drawn to Yahweh, whose character once again comes into full focus as the source and the foundation of their faith and of your faith. And so, friends, if you are tired of the way the world seems to be going right now, if you're exhausted from fighting what seems to be A losing battle with your own sin if you're dejected with failure because you never seem to get anything right if you're struggling with believing that things will ever turn out the way that you said or thought they might if you're having difficulty believing the promise that anything will ever actually get better then the antidote prescribed by the prophet is that you would consider the saving virtue of God's grace. He holds it out in the promise here of abundant mercy and joy to any and to all who would find themselves in desperate need of those things. The way that we'll see what the prophet has for us is by looking in three heads what God is like when men fail. Read with me verses 4 through 11. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass that in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners so no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. The word of the Lord that comes to Jeremiah is to remind them that he hears them, that he sees that they are in distress. Such great distress, actually, that it seems like the men, the men of valor, the men who are to stand and defend their own country, are bent over in the fetal position in terror, trembling because of the disaster that is upon them. He says somewhat rhetorically, can a man bear a child? No. Then why does it look like he's bent over in labor pains? Every face has turned pale. That is how great that day of judgment is as God pours out His wrath, His enmity, His discipline on His people. And yet He says, I see them in their distress. He acknowledges how difficult the burden of His discipline is on His people. But remember, God cares. And so not only does He see and have regard for His people, but He says that He asks. He says, Yes, in the time of distress for Jacob, He will be yet saved out of it in verse 7. What we see about God, even though when men have lost their valor, the Lord will rescue His people. When men have lost their strength and their courage, the Lord will rescue His people. By this we see that then God is a trustworthy defender. We tend to put our allegiance and our trust And as the Old Testament puts it, horses and chariots in our armies. And to some degree, rightly, we should. But when the Lord comes against us, who can be for us? The Lord's judgment is poured out in wrath against His people. And it comes in the form of a great and mighty army, the Babylonian Empire. And there is no stopping the tide of judgment. There will be desolation, destruction, and disaster. And even the men of great strength and courage. Even the mighty men of valor are shaking in terror like a woman in labor. But God says, I will deliver you. Think of the strongest person you know. Think of the strongest army you know. Think of the greatest nation you know. I will deliver you, not them. Yahweh reveals himself to be our trustworthy defender. He comes to the defense of his people when they find themselves unable to do what only God can do. They cannot defend themselves. They recognize the difficulty that lies before them, the hopelessness of the situation, the depth of the hole that they dug for themselves. But God says, I will save you out of it. It shall come to pass, he says in verse 8, that I will break the yoke That Nebuchadnezzar has put on you. I will burst your bonds. The shackles and the chains that have been put around you will burst. And you will serve the Lord. You will have a king that will be raised up among you to lead you. Better than any king in the past, it will be God Himself. And so He says, I will act because I care and I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. What does he restore? Notice there in verse 8 and 9, he says that he restores them to a rightly ordered worship. Not the foreigners and their gods and their idols that Israel and Judah bowed down to for too long, which is why they're in this place. But they shall, upon the restoration and the salvation of Yahweh, serve the Lord and David their king. They will again submit themselves to His Word, His covenant, His purpose, His will, and they will follow what He has commanded. It is His worship and the way that He has prescribed it that when they have been restored to fellowship with God, they will then faithfully endure. So when all men have lost their strength, the Lord will rescue His people by restoring them again to worship, bringing them back into right step with Faithfulness, justice, equity, the desires of their heart will no longer feast on the idols of other nations would be completely satisfied in submission to God. So the first thing we see then is that when men have lost their valor, the Lord will rescue His people. The second part that we learn about God as He compares Himself with the fickleness of men is in verses 12 through 17. Again, he says, thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wounds are grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you and they care nothing for you. I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great and your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. And I have done these things to you. But notice sort of the almost illogical turn. Yet, therefore, all who devour you, you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you, they shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make prey. For I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, it is Zion for whom no one cares. Again, remember the refrain that God tells Jeremiah to speak to the exiles. I care and I will act. He sees the plight of his people, even though he admits here very clearly, I, in verse 14, I have dealt you the blow of the enemy. Or the end of verse 15, I have done these things to you. He says, even though this is your plight, my compassion still moves. And so I will again restore to you health. Again, when we see not only that the Lord will rescue His people, but also that when man's sickness cannot be cured, the Lord will heal His people. It is not simply enough to notice that the man in his armor is shaking like a woman in labor, but also that he is more like a diseased and terminal patient who cannot cure himself. The Lord will heal His people. He says, Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is no medicine and no healing. You have been left to die. Verse 14, it says, Your lovers and all that you have loved... They've forgotten you, they've left you, and they do not care for you. They say, this is Zion, at the end of verse 17. Nobody cares for Zion, but God is a caring physician. Not only is Yahweh our trustworthy defender who comes to our aid when we cannot and no one else will, but He is also our caring physician who can heal our sickness when no medicine or physician could. Of course, our sickness is sin. It is the temptation of our hearts to chase after idols, to, to pleasure ourselves with, with feasts of whatever it may be our appetites would desire. We seek our comfort and our safety and our security in all manner of false and sinful things. Our hearts are blackened with sin and rebellion against God and there is no cure. For sin. It is a terminal, fatal disease which claims the life of everyone born with it. God says the only cure for such a disease is the hand of the physician alone. He alone can heal the sickness of our hearts. He alone can bind up the wounds which cannot be bound by any human hands. He alone can bring balm to our souls when no other medicine can heal us. He says He will restore you, bring you, even though you are broken down, your health has left you, and you are on the verge of death. I will restore health to you, He says in verse 17. I will take vengeance upon those who wound you. I will deal with sin and the enemy, and I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, it says. Yahweh is our caring physician, tending to our sickness and our sinfulness, not just in some small measure, but completely and totally dealing with sin. And how? Through the sending of His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. As we read this morning on our call to worship and in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, He who knew no sin became sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, God's Son, deals with our sickness not simply by coming up with a concoction or a formula that we can drink, but by in His own flesh taking on sin, the curse of sin, the penalty of sin. It says that He had become sin and was cursed for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We are restored then, healed, and made righteous by the work of Christ, our great physician. Jesus says that He did not come for the righteous. He did not come for the healthy. It is the sick who need a physician. It is the unrighteous for whom He has come to save. He knows the sickness and the plight of man And as our great physician, as the good and faithful doctor of our souls, he deals with sickness of sin by taking it upon himself, suffering the wrath of God for us that we might be restored to righteous fellowship. Some will say about the church that no one really cares for them, that the world has rejected the church And that becomes a byword of ridicule and mockery in the world. But God sees with compassion the plight of those who have come against us. He knows the battle with sin that we lose. And He sends Christ in the Spirit to remind us of the work of Christ. That we would be instilled with courage and conviction that because of Jesus we are restored to fellowship with Him. And therefore we no longer are mocked by the enemy, but have overcome by the victory of Jesus, our enemy. We have fellowship with God because we have been brought near to God and healed. And so when men have lost their strength, the Lord will rescue His people. And when man's sickness cannot be cured, the Lord will heal His people. But we go on to see again in the remainder of the chapter that when man's hope is destroyed, the Lord will exalt His people. In verse 18, Thus says the Lord, again, comfort to his people. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes in the tents of Jacob. I have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the place shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving, and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them, and they shall not be a few, for I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves, their ruler shall come out from their midst and I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare approach himself to me, declares the Lord, and yet you shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has come, a whirling tempest And it will burst upon the head of the wicked. And the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. In verse one of the next chapter, we can conclude. For at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Again, just consider the the, the desperation of the people who have just lost their political, social, and theological identity. The temple is destroyed. Their hope is dashed. God seems to have ignored His covenant and left them to face the worst fears. And yet God says again, I know, I see, I care, and so I act. He knows, and so He acts. When man's hope is destroyed, the Lord will exalt His people. And this we see again, that not, not only is Yahweh our trustworthy defender, and not only is He our caring physician, but Yahweh will be and is our sovereign hope. He again positions Himself in contrast to the hopelessness around them, that He will be their King, and He will be their hope. Notice He says that, I will be their God. They shall be My people. The relationship, again, which was broken by sin, idolatry and waywardness is restored again I am their God you are my people and this relationship is one in which God is a gracious benefactor constantly giving and pouring out lavishly blessing salvation grace upon grace despite our constant misdeeds our rebellion, our distrust. God, as our God, intends to forever lavish us with such blessing that even when we wander, our hearts overcome with grace would be brought back and restored. Even to the sinner who has not yet fully believed in the power of the work of God in Christ for their sins, may, if God wills, be overcome with such grace that they are thrown at the foot of the cross and depend greatly on the mercy of God. And they are restored, not simply to material wealth and success, but to joyful prosperity and wholeness in the God. They, in God, they receive the, the greatest longing and satisfaction and contentment of their soul. Yes. Israel will be brought back to Jerusalem. Yes, they will have the opportunity to rebuild the temple. Yes, they would begin to rebuild the kingdom. But God is more intent on accomplishing the intentions of His mind, it says in verse 24. That which they may not understand now, but will soon enough. That He and He alone will be the hope of His people. And those whose hope is in the Lord will be they who are exalted by God. And so friends, God clearly brings disaster and catastrophe upon Israel in order to discipline and to judge them because of their sin. But everything now is on the floor strewn around them. And he says to them, you want to rebuild, look to me. I will be your guide. Leave nothing undone. Leave no screw unturned. Follow me. Trust me. Hope in me. I will restore you. I will heal you. I will bring you prosperity and peace. Jeremiah's comfort then is that what God will do is only what God alone can do. So those who are in exile are to turn their hope, however difficult the circumstances must be, to God. To begin to trust Him and to set their hope And their confidence, not in the strongest men around them, not in somebody else coming to bail them out, but upon God alone, the faithful, covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, who cares and who acts. Three exhortations from the text then that you and I can keep in mind as we consider the kind of God who comes and acts on behalf of His people out of compassion and mercy. The first is about the nature of Christian faith. Our faith as Christians is not a don't worry, be happy kind of faith. Sort of an ignorance is bliss. If I just have a good attitude and just believe, everything will go well for me. I can ignore all the bad things, just focus on the good thing. This isn't positivity alone, faith. Rather, the faith of the Christian is to be rooted in the character of our Creator, Deep into the bones of our faith is who God is. Namely, His faithfulness, His mercy, His tenderheartedness to His people. He acts in love even when He disciplines. Ultimately, our faith is rooted in the mercies of Christ, His Son. And so we're not ignoring what is difficult. We're not pretending that things aren't hard. We don't ignore or dismiss suffering. We don't avoid difficult conversations or examining ourselves in light of Scripture, even when it might be a hard pill to swallow. Our faith, in fact, leads us deeper into the heart of God. And as we understand God, there our faith grows and is flourished. And the character of our Creator and His faithful, tender mercy And in the person and work of Jesus, we can root our faith deeply, unmovably, unshakably in His work. And therefore we see that our hope, our trust, our belief isn't put in any one of our strengths or abilities or ingenuities or creativity. It's not in how quickly you can come to an answer or turn to a Bible passage. It's not about the works that you'll do. It is only and completely on the mercies of Christ who alone can heal you from your sin. So the first observation and exhortation then is that you would examine your faith and see how deeply rooted it is in the Creator of the universe, in His character as a covenant-keeping God, in Him in whom, in whose blood the covenant was made, Christ. Examine whether you have placed your faith and trust and all the external things and the trappings, as good as they may be, of Christianity, but not in the Christ of Christianity. The second exhortation is to remember that Israel's fortune, though it would be restored, though they would again build the temple, it would never be like the first temple. And even though God would bless it, and He would again dwell with His people, and they would again attempt to to follow His word and His law, the fortune restored to them is not to be found in the material blessing that they would receive by Yahweh's hand. It's not to boast in all that they have gained for themselves. That's what began to get them in trouble in the first place. The restoration of Israel's fortune is not found in all of these other things, but in Yahweh Himself. So as He restores them into fellowship, His intention is that they would know Him and be known by Him, that the center of their relationship with God would be knowing and delighting in God, not in all the things that God gives them as His people. We must and should enjoy all the good things we have. Praise God for the the many gracious gifts He gives to us in our life. But if He is not at the center of all that we desire and enjoy about Christianity, then your faith is not in Christ, but in the world. He is their fortune. He is their prize. He is their treasure. Or in other words, the maximum or optimal good that any one person, any one community, or any one nation could ever desire to achieve must be centered on God's bestowal of His own mercy and presence in covenant relationship. That is where you find the deepest well of God's joy and presence. That is where you are satisfied deeper than any other Thing this world can have to offer. If you want to maximize your joy, optimize the good in your life, it is not found in the small trappings of life, but in the presence and the purpose that God is and has for you. In fact, this is exactly what we learn He has done in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 that says, In Him we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. You lack nothing that you need to thrive as a Christian whose faith can endure even when things are difficult. In Him, in Christ, we have received every spiritual blessing, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, made known to us in the riches of Christ, whom He put forward as a plan of propitiation before the beginning of time. This is what He's done in Christ. So if you want to deeply enjoy the world that God has made to the glory of God it is only possible in relationship to God in which God is your delight is your joy in which the deepest fount of satisfaction comes from knowing Him how much more then will you enjoy the things He gives you? how much more do you enjoy the gifts that someone you love deeply has given you not because you like the thing you've been given but the person who gave it? so as we consider our own restoration, the sickness of our own souls made whole again by the work of Christ, you consider what He has done for you. May it not be that you are simply freed from the bondage of sin and not simply that you escape the condemnation of everlasting torment in hell, but let it be that you have gained something even greater. Christ, fellowship, the knowledge of the holy, presence, and the peace that is found alone in Him. And lastly, all of these blessings are to be the motivation for Christian joy. That is how we turn into to a world which thinks it has joy but doesn't. Look at all the people smiling on your Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or whatever you may be looking. And know that unless they are finding joy in Christ, it is a fleeting joy. It is not a joy that will last. The joy and wealth Monetary things are not a joy that will come with them to the next life. Alone, Christ provides joy. So, all the blessings which He lavishes on us in spiritual wisdom in Christ is the motivation for Christian joy. You have a joyful life because of these blessings and because of your affection in Christ. This is a well of mercy by which you can drink. A well of contentment from which all of us may lap up and enjoy that would restore the weariness of our hearts, dry the tearful eyes that we cling to and recall to our wandering minds all the marvelous grace of the wondrous works of God. When we drink deeply from the well of of joy, we are drinking deeply from the heart of Christ. So again, if you are a Christian, weary from the world's travels, whose bonds seem like they are squeezing them, desiring that they would be broken so they may live in freedom and joy. If you're wondering when will things get better, where does this screw go? How do I support myself here? How can I trust? Where can I go? Jeremiah reminds us that God, He cares. He hears you. He knows. And He acts. He has acted by bringing Judah back to the promised land. He has more faithfully and more fulfillingly acted in the sending of Jesus. And yet we know that there are still promises yet he will fulfill. The fullness of time in which Jesus came tells us that he will come again. There are still yet greater blessings and promises for us to receive at the hand of the Lord. So I want to end just with a verse of a hymn. One of my favorites, it, it's called Poor Sinner Dejected with Fear written by someone in the late 19th century or early 19th century, William Gadsby. It says, poor sinner dejected with fear unbosom thy mind to the Lamb. No wrath on his brow does he wear nor will he poor mourners condemn. His arm of omnipotent grace is able and willing to save a sweet and permanent peace He'll freely and faithfully give. This is such a hope. As we continue to study the the book of Consolation from Jeremiah, we know that He freely and faithfully gives grace and peace to those who would go to the Lamb, suffering for our sins, that we might have the righteousness that He provides. Let's pray. Father, there is much more to be said as always. a fresh air to our, our weary heart and lungs, our mind would be renewed with the truth of the gospel and that we would be moved and motivated by joy for what you have done for us in Christ, that we would repent of our wandering by idols and idolatry, that we would turn again to drink from the well of grace and remind ourselves that our trust must only be in you. Forgive us where we have erred from that truth. And for those, God, who may not have ever fully trusted in the work of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, we pray, God, that you would even now work in such a way in their heart, perhaps savingly, even this morning, that they would say, I trust you. Despite all my wanderings, all my failings, I know you are a God who is mighty to save, who is able to save, even willing to save and has promised to save any and all who come to the Lamb God. It's in blood His name, Jesus' name we pray. Trust frame, name. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more, or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com When darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging